WBZ original. Uh, Eric Fisher, who says that um, love raking leaves, because I said made, made a mention a couple oh, weeks ago that raking leaves is the worst possible thing. Yeah. Oh. I love raking leaves. Eric likes to rake leaves. He thinks it's their. He likes to rake he leaves. Loves autumn. He likes to rake leaves just because other people don't. <laughs> Welcome to Studio BZ. We are still Austin's number one podcast. This is episode two of Stephen. Steve, yeah. Let me start again. <laughs> no, keep going. I like that. He'll use part you of that. Don't start again. Oh, <laughs> damn it. Uh, it's season two, season four, episode two, and Liam and I are here today yeah. with a guest. Yeah. Host. Special guest, John Keller's Should out. We tease who it is. John Keller it? just could not be just like the, the mask so, uh, on Fox. Yes. So, how could we describe <laughs> who our guest guess host who is? I am. <laughs> yeah, hello, David Wade is joining us here at the podcast studio. I feel like I should do like a John Keller impression. Right okay. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, Fire away. Do I have one? Governor. <laughs> the best I can do. That's about it. That was a one word, one but word. you know what? You nailed Governor. it. You don't have a lot of impressions made up of one word, but that's we, it. David Wade, is the, David Wade is the impressionist of the news. It's true. We, Not we, that he wants to get this. He wants this to get back out. Back when Bill Evans was the commissioner of the Boston Police, that was. Ooh, those were some good nights in the newsroom. In, well, yeah, just you know, it's a pleasure to be here. This is Commissioner <laughs> Evans. How uh, are things, sir? How are things going at Boston College? Pretty good. It's. Uh, you know, fly eagles fly, as I like to say. <laughs> we were sad. Evans we, has we such honestly a distinctive speaking <laughs> held a vigil when he was no longer the commissioner. I love that guy. He's and I do that best. with much respect because he was a fantastic commissioner. Um, but yeah, he has a distinct way of speaking. Yes. And uh, when you have a distinct way, people are going to <laughs> David's been captured, <laughs> right. absolutely. It is I, done with love and affection. We're very glad David's here. I do miss John's mustache. And I was kind of hoping you would come in with a mustache. Well, I only had 10 minutes notice that right. we were doing the podcast, <laughs> right. and that's not long enough to grow a mustache. That was only enough time to prepare. I needed we at least can only ask 30 minutes. so much. <laughs> um, hey, here's what's on this week's show. What did you say, Ellie? Oh. Oh, yeah. I have, oh, he there you go. He has a mustache on oh, his there socks. Are mustache. Wow, there are mustaches on David's socks. How hipster are those See? socks? So it's like John's mustache is here in, well... You know, in honor of him. Right, right. It's like Davis Square call. They want my socks back. (laughs) (laughs) Movember. (laughs) So on this week's show, we have uh, two amazing interviews, and then we're going to talk about something interesting in the news. Uh, An interview with Maura Healy, Ryan O'Callaghan, and we're going to talk about Felicity Huffman. So first we should talk about John Keller's interview with Maura Healy. Yeah, I think a big part of his interview was about uh, some of the big lawsuits that she gets mm-hmm. involved with uh, with other attorney generals across the U.S. Uh, and then he asked her about her future ambitions, mm-hmm. which always gets a little interesting. Not a lot of politicians <laughs> want to talk about that. Everyone thinks she's eventually going to run for governor. Mm-hmm. For John, something, right? For something. For something at the next level. And John Keller asked her about that at the end of this interview. The feeling that the concept of the rule of law is uh, in jeopardy these days? <laughs> Get the feeling, yeah. I mean, the rule of law, John, has been under attack by this president and his administration for the last few years now. The good news is you see state AGs taking action, going to court to hold the line and to really fight for the rule of law. And that's why you've seen so many actions. Uh, we've had a lot of success in court, but you know, I don't care what party you're in, Democrat, Republican, or other, 
um, we've got to hang on to some basic principles on which this country's been founded, and rule of law is something that separates this country from other countries in the world. And yet we do see partisanship uh, within the AG community, if you'll pardon the expression, in the, uh, the Purdue Pharma settlement, which uh, you opposed and did, are not participating in. I guess a majority of states are, are with you on this. Including, uh, it, including some Republicans. But um, it, it's very few, though, right? It's yeah, mostly Democratic AGs. I think that ultimately that's probably the way it's, it's broken down. Yeah. Um, but there are both Democrats and Republicans on both sides of, of the deal, and every state AG has to make the call themselves. But, you know, I think that it's, it's really important that we've uh, been there as a group to to take action. You know, when, when the federal government does something that's an overreach or the president does something that's illegal, unconstitutional, we have to be there to call that out. And the way we do that is by taking him to court and getting the rulings that we've we've received. I, I wish it would end the need for, for legislation to defend, uh, excuse me, litigation to defend the rule of law. But until until he stops doing certain things, we've got to be there to try to hold the line. Has this activism by attorneys general uh, uh, been a trend that's been building for some time? I mean, it did, it didn't start with the Trump era. No, it right? didn't. I, I would say the volume is far more significant, and the nature of the kinds of cases we're having to bring. State AGs have worked together over the years on any number of big litigations and, and cases. And we've also sued the federal government from time to time. But something very different has happened here in the last couple of years where you've seen us have to go to court to defend, remember, and protect the way the census is conducted. The Trump administration did not want to see every person counted within certain states. So we actually had to take them to court, and the court ruled in our favor. So defending the census, defending access to voting, defending health care, uh, defending uh, uh, programs like the DACA program that have worked successfully for DREAMers here, uh, defending women's access to reproductive health care, uh, defending basic rulemaking. A lot of times this administration, particularly in the energy space and environmental space, just comes out with a rule um, that basically is meant to undo something done during, during the Obama era. And we've had to go to court, and the courts have said, look, you can undo a rule and come out with your own new rule, but you can't just ignore the rule that's there or tear it up. And it's basic, you know, rule of law principles that we've won on. Same thing when we sued Betsy DeVos. You know, we do a lot of work to try to protect student borrowers. So many people are carrying huge debts, student loan debts. And the DeVos administration has wanted to give over to loan servicers and for-profit schools more of the bank of business there. And the way they're doing that is by ripping up regulations that were on the books to protect student borrowers from further predatory actions. So you see us going to court and winning, um, getting rulings that say, hey, that's not the way you go about new rulemaking, new lawmaking. And, you know, again, we're just going to continue to have to be there as, as needed to, to protect people in our states. Now, you took office in 2015 uh, when President Obama was still in office. Seems like a long time ago. I, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> did, you, uh, did your office ever sue the Obama administration? Yes, and I was lead counsel on one of the major suits against President Obama. What was that? the challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act. Oh, that right. was the law that right. um, denied recognition to marriages between same-sex couples. And we actually sued the Obama administration. We went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and we won. So 
we've sued both Democrat and Republican administrations. The difference here since 2016, 2017, January, uh, starting with the travel ban, we have never seen the volume um, in terms of the number of actions that states have had to file against the Trump administration or federal government and the nature of uh, the breadth. Uh, I mean, we've really had to act on so many different fronts because this administration and this president is doing things that are not only illegal and unconstitutional, but also hard to fathom, like never been done before, like unprecedented, you know? And so <laughs> we find ourselves, you know, having to take positions and articulate, stand up for basic principles like rule of law in a way I think uh, many of us never contemplated having to do. Presidents have the prerogative of appointing whoever they want to be U.S. attorney. Um, and the pattern is Democratic presidents tend to appoint Democrats, Republicans appoint Republicans. The current U.S. attorney, Andrew Lowing, is a, a, a Trump appointee. I believe he's a Republican. Is he a partisan as well? Is that office partisan? You know, uh, the way it works in this country is that Every state, and sometimes within a state, there may be a few U.S. attorneys for uh, different um, uh, geographical regions within a state. And the job of those U.S. attorneys is to really enforce federal law. Here, I think, in Massachusetts, as in elsewhere, you see them uh, heavily focused on uh, criminal laws. Um, and they also defend the federal government when, when it's sued. So, you know, we work with the U.S. Attorney's Office from time to time on our criminal investigations, human trafficking, gaming, money laundering, financial fraud. We've spent a lot of time in my office on combating the trafficking of heroin and fentanyl in our state, and we're working closely with the feds on that. So, you know, they have their role um, and, and their area, and state AGs have, have our area. And I'd hope um, that, you know, all of us as lawyers, regardless of where we sit, um, fulfill our obligation to adhere to the oath that we swore. A difference, though, I will say, is what I've seen out of the Justice Department. The actions by a Bill Barr, for example, and folks surrounding him, to me, really diminish and demean the profession, what it means to be a lawyer. Um, there are certain things that we believe that he has done and others around him have done that are just counter to what we swore to do as lawyers. And that's not a partisan comment. That's not a political comment. That's just the comment of a lawyer making observations and wondering, you know, how could that ever have been allowed to happen? Never would have happened in my office or anyone's office, for example, you know, of all the state AGs I know. Because we have a president who believes that the United States Attorney General is his personal lawyer. And unfortunately, we see Bill Barr acting in ways that comport with um, uh, Trump's uh, position. Well, there are quite a few people. There were, there was a full-page ad in the newspaper taken out with dozens of organizations listed on it who believe that the prosecution and ultimately the verdict in the Boston Calling case, where two aides to Boston Mayor Marty Walsh were convicted of extortion for pressuring a concert promoter to hire union, some union help, uh, who felt that that was a flagrantly partisan and political effort to delegitimize unions. Do you agree or disagree with that? Well, I think that's a matter that is up on appeal now, so I think we'll, we'll let the courts decide on that, and in particular the, the Court of Appeals. Uh, well, a lot of elected officials have come out strongly criticizing this, do you take their point or well, not? you know, I think that it, it, it certainly is the case that 
as prosecutors, and I am a prosecutor, um, we have discretion. We have um, the really responsibility to decide how we're going to allocate our resources, what kind of cases and investigations we're going to pursue. That's an important part of my job, you know, thinking about, it's why we've put such an emphasis on, on the opioid-related work, you know, what are the harms out there that families and communities are experiencing, and then making decisions where you put resources and lawyers and investigators in that direction. Here it appears the U.S. attorney, uh, not once but twice, has uh, brought this this case. Um, it's on appeal, and you know I I presume that you know they act with the belief that they they have the case to make and and have the right to present it. Uh, so I'm not going to question that. Um, that said, I I understand the calls by some of those organizations and others who look to petition government. I have people that come to our office every day off the streets or they write in or they email or they want to meet with our teams to discuss issues of importance to them and their communities. We certainly don't want it to be the case that their ability to petition government, to ask for relief, to talk about, hey, this is the way this potential law is going to affect me. Um, that's part of necessary policymaking. And I think my office, and at least me, I think you know, I take the view that the more we're able to hear from stakeholders, take in a variety of views, the better off we'll be in terms of policy. We never want to see that chilled. Are you concerned about politicization of the Hobbs Act, which was the underlying cause, uh, principle of this indictment? Well, I think in general, you know, as with any law that's out there, it can be put to, to good, it can be put to ill use. And it really you know, that's why you want good people in government, you want good people in prosecutors' offices, you want people who have the power and the authority of a subpoena, for example, to exercise that with due care and with reverence to the law. And it's not to say that political debate doesn't swirl about. Of course, it's out there in the ether, right? But at the end of the day, it's got to be what are the facts, what are the law? And I I think even for people, you know, I would hope that people in this state, you may not agree with all the decisions that I've made, right? I, I get that. You may not agree with all the actions that, that, it, that I've taken, my office has taken. But I think the best I can come away with, John, is, you know, if they think that I made those determinations in good faith, um, we can, can, can let it be. I can't let you go without a little political talk here. <laughs> Your name comes up when they talk about the possibility of an open Senate election, should Elizabeth Warren be elected president, that would create a vacancy. Your name comes up when they talk about the next governor's race in three years. Now, in an effort to actually have a meaningful exchange on this, I'm going to stipulate that you love and are totally focused mm -hmm. on the job you're doing now, and of course, you wouldn't rule anything out in the future. Yeah. So. Can we get past that and just get a sense Asked and of answered. when okay. you think of your of your own future yeah. and the work kind of work you want to do? Do you think of a of a uh, an executive position or a legislative position or something outside of politics? You know, I left private practice in the private sector years ago, and I have loved being able to work in uh, the public interest and in a job like this. We stipulated that. Yeah, but I think it's just, <laughs> look, at the end of the day, I'm somebody, I'm going to be motivated by, you know, what's in my heart, okay. what's in my head, you know, what's right for me and, and, and uh, those around me. Um, and, you know, I take 
There's something really cool about this job, I will say, because we get to take actions, immediate actions, go to court, get an injunction, sue somebody, subpoena for information, speak out on an issue, convene and bring people together. You know, I get to work across the country with other states. It's not a debating society. It's it's a really, you know, and, and, I, and I am just so thoroughly um, in, into the job right now. I think a decision like that um, ultimately comes down to, for me, how do I think I can make a difference, you know, and uh, is that going to match up with, you know, sort of where I am personally at any given time. But I appreciate being included in the conversations as names are are bandied about and, you know, the pundits talk. But uh, but I think the best thing I can do is just trying to keep doing my job and running running uh, a law firm that I'm really, really proud of. And I'm really grateful, John, to, to my team in the office. If you ask me, the most difference-making job in politics, hands down, is big city mayor. It's Yeah, you have an opportunity to do a lot of good and make things happen. And I think you know, what I've said the last couple of years is it's so important. Look, I know, you know, it is important that we have uh, new, a new occupant in the White House. It is important that we have strong people in Congress representing us across this country. But so much of the action, you know, is happening at the state and local level. Climate change, for example, it's cities and states that are moving ahead with clean energy economies and plans to confront the climate crisis. That's where change is happening, and that's why I encourage people to run for office at the local level, uh, to be engaged in and pay attention to who's doing what. Uh, all these races matter, and they're great opportunities, as you say, mayor or other positions, to make a real difference in people's lives. So I think we've got our headline, right? Healy, quote, I'd rather be governor, right? <laughs> you can write what you want. <laughs> I'm just you gonna, know the fake news. Yeah, we, we, we will say yeah, what we I've, want. Yeah, I've given up. Listen, thanks for coming by. We really appreciate it. Come again soon. I will. Great to be with you. Up next, Liam, I know you had an interview about this new book out, which has just a fascinating and heartbreaking story mm. about someone that people in New England were used to watching on the field, playing for the New England Patriots long ago. But, of course, none of us had any idea what was going on inside this young man's head. Yeah, you might recognize his name and not know his story. Ryan O'Callaghan, former offensive lineman for the Patriots from 2006 to 2008. He retired in 2011, has since come out as gay, and now he has a new book going much more in-depth with his story called My Life on the Line, How the NFL Damn Near Killed Me and Ended Up Saving My Life. And we want to warn people before listening to this interview he does discuss uh, suicide ideation. During this interview, he had a, a plan to kill himself after his playing days. And we want to warn you before you listen to this interview about that. Well, Ryan, thanks for chatting with us. We yeah. appreciate it. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. You're drafted, let's go back a bit, by the New England Patriots in 2006. Yes. And you're at the height of your game. You play on the team that goes undefeated during the regular season in 07. It would seem to the outside world that you were at the height of your game and that everything should have been perfect in your world, but it wasn't. No, I, going back, my story, I never loved football. I, I only played as a cover for being gay, but I was very passionate about making the team and doing well because that was my cover. So even though I didn't love the game, I was deadly serious about it. You know, a lot of guys are going through different things, whether it's 
like me that was closeted or marital problems. And you know, I think professionals find a way to manage it. Mm. So you started playing football as a cover for being gay. Yeah. I, I didn't think I could do a good enough job convincing a female that I was straight. And I thought that would kind of blow my cover. So I knew I was good enough at football pretty early on, you know, definitely through college, and I just ran with it. When did that start? High school? Or did you start playing earlier than that? Well, I, I started playing football in high school. Um, I, was, I was the big kid. My dad was refereeing and around football, so it was kind of assumed that I was going to play. So I played, didn't like it, but I kept playing, and then all of a sudden you kind of get into the popular crowd, and I was really good, and then I got a scholarship, so it all kind of just, one thing led to another. When did you realize you were gay? I knew I was gay at puberty. Uh, before that, I knew I was different. I knew I was having little attractions to men, and, and the attractions to females weren't, wasn't there yet, but I thought maybe I was a late bloomer. But by the time you hit puberty, you know, you're, it's more than just a, you know, he's cute type thing. It's, you know, what happens at puberty. How did you react? I was scared to death. It, it scared me to death. I, I, I instantly went in the closet, and because growing up, you hear all these things from people you love, talking negatively about gay people. And you know, as a kid, you instantly assume they're gonna think the same thing about you, so they can never find out. And you know, that's instantly why I just dove into the closet. And you grew up in Northern California. You said in a community that was pretty socially conservative. Is oh. that part of your fear as well? Yeah, it, it still is. Um, yeah, you know, and that was also before like the internet and all that other stuff where I actually had access to see that there might have been someone else like me. You know, I, I didn't have any gay role models growing up or anyone in the family that I knew. And um, really growing up, like you said, where I did, it was very blue collar and, uh, you know, there weren't out gay people. By the time I got to the NFL, I, I had already basically trained myself. You know, you don't look, you don't do this, you don't do that. Um, but I would avoid certain situations. Like in the book, I talk about I'd go get coffee when everyone's changing real quick or I'd go to the training room and I knew I wasn't doing anything that might make someone mad or something, but I just, I almost felt guilty about it, um, which I, I know now is ridiculous, but you know, to me back then, I was, I was just always thinking I was gonna get caught. Did you find it tough to connect with your teammates because you're gay? And some things, like you know, people would get in circles and start talking about girls and things like that, but I always had a way to back out of that. But for the most part, it, it, it wasn't, homophobic, not in the NFL. Um, the only homophobic things I heard was from one coach, um, and that was in Kansas City. So, you know, as far as teammates go, it really wasn't a, a negative atmosphere towards, you know, gay guys. So you go on to play college at UC Berkeley, right? Yeah. And you're a star offensive lineman. You get drafted by the Patriots in 2006, and you have this very disturbing section in the book when you reveal that you actually had a plan for what you were going to do when football ended. Yeah, I was convinced family would never love me. Friends would never love me as an out gay man. Um, I like to say how wrong I am about that, but growing up, I told you I jumped into the closet real quick and I had a hard time ever taking a step back and thinking, okay, it might be okay. And that never happened for me. So I, I decided I'd play football as long as I could and then end it. I, just, I, I didn't have a long-term plan or goals. And, you were gonna kill yourself? Yeah. Did you, had you, just the day football ended, you were going to yeah. end your life. Yeah. I started pushing my family out of my life a few months before because I got injured my last year. 
the last two years in a row I got injured. And so I started pushing people away because I thought that would make it easier on them, which is ridiculous. But uh, I started spending all the money, giving it away, trying to make it almost impossible to back out of it too. Obviously, if I'd given up all hope, I would have just right. killed myself. But you were taking real steps toward, oh, yeah. toward this plan. Yeah. What changed? <laughs> the trainer for the Chiefs, David Price, um, he noticed I was acting off. Um, at that point, the last couple of years, I started abusing painkillers. And the trainer obviously knows you're taking painkillers because I was injured and I was getting quite a few prescriptions from the team. But he didn't know exactly how much I was taking and where I was getting them from. And, but he noticed I was acting funny. I thought I was doing a good job of hiding it. Um, but one morning I went in there for rehab on my shoulder and he pulled me in his office and he just brought up, you know, hey, I know you got a problem. Um, you know, I think you should go talk to someone. So I reluctantly agreed because saying no just raises more questions and um, I figured I could just lie to the psychologist and kind of get her out of my hair quickly and that wasn't the case. What happened from there? Uh, he introduced me to Dr. Wilson. Um, she, uh, she was a very professional, very opposite of me, but she had a way of, of really, I mean, it's her job to break you down and get to the root of the problems, but I stayed tough for months, and then finally she started chipping away at me, and um, this was also towards the end of the season where I knew my plan and everything else was going on, and one day, uh, caught me at a weak moment, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I decided I was going to tell her because I was at the end of my rope and um, I didn't, I really didn't want my mom to blame herself for anything I did. Um, so I told her and the first thing she did was stood up and gave me a hug, told me I wasn't the first person to ever tell her, uh, first football player to tell her, um, which instantly felt good. You know, I, I, I never thought I was the only one, but to know that she had other pro athletes already come out to her was you know, it gives you a, you know, a sense that you're not alone. Um, and I told her about my plan, and she, she basically said, well, why don't you find out if you need to kill yourself? You know, it wasn't that blunt, but, um, you know, I, I lived my whole life thinking none of these people will love me. She said, well, why don't you find out? And that's very common and basic thought, but I never, I never thought that. I was just, I was so consumed in my own mind that I never thought that was an option. So she convinced me to go talk to family and the people I was worried most about. So I went back to California and slowly started to tell people. And it went a million times better than I ever thought it would. What was that moment like telling your, your parents, for instance, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, uh, like I said, I, I started pushing family out. You know, So by the time I called them and said, hey, I'm coming to town, we need to talk, they didn't know what the heck was going on. Um, I had made it so dramatic and you know, it was just me in my own head, but I sat them down in the living room and it was just my mom and dad and I told them. Um, my mom just stood up and hugged me and she thought something was really wrong with me. She thought I had like terminal cancer or something and so she was almost relieved that I was fine and um, my dad, he gave me a hug. Uh, he wasn't angry or anything, but he was definitely shocked. Um, you know, he spent what was it, 29 years at that point, picturing my life going a certain way, the way I told him it was going, and I dropped that on him. So it took him a little while to adjust, um, but 
Like and it, now we're, we're closer than we've ever been. What was the reaction like from your teammates? At some point, did they learn as well? Yeah, the first uh, kind of football person I told was Scott Pioli, who was the general manager for the Chiefs. He was with the Patriots, and then when he went over there, he brought me. And um, Scott knew what was going on with me with the pills, and we become pretty close just talking over the years. And so I told him, and um, he stood up, gave me a hug, cracked a little joke, just like he always would. You know, I also wasn't the first person to tell him. So uh, that went over great. And Scott, to this day, is, is awesome. He's a, we chat all the time, and, and he's a very strong ally and does a lot for kind of minority people. And, uh, and I had so many different teammates reach out. Even Mr. Kraft called me. He was in Jerusalem when he called me. And um, other ex-teammates that I didn't even know had my number, like Brable and um, other guys from the Chiefs. So it's been all positive. What did Robert Kraft say to you? What did he say to me exactly? Uh, I think he told me it took a lot of courage to do what I did. Um, you know, that he knew other people were going to be able to look up to me, and uh, he was proud of me. And what was that? Th that? That means a lot. You know, if you have someone at the head of the organization, any organization, but especially something like the Patriots that is an ally and, and there for you, and that, that really does mean a lot. And I think it should mean a lot to guys on the team, too, who may also be in a similar position, knowing that, you know, the guy that signs their checks is perfectly fine with it. This changed your life. You went from planning a suicide yeah. to being out, being yourself for the first time since puberty, yeah. really. What message would you send to other young men or women who themselves are feeling this way, that, that they should stay in the closet and don't feel comfortable telling the world? Yeah, I mean, everyone's in a different situation, family, work, sometimes religion, marriage. So everyone's got a different situation, and they kind of need to evaluate it. But I think the overall thing I tell people is it's never as bad as you think. You know, I know that's very cliche, but it really is never as bad as you think it may be when you come out. And um, I always tell kids, just be yourself and you know, have faith that the world will catch up, even if they're not okay with it. So, um, you know, I try to make sure I, I tell people how good it feels when you can finally be yourself and that weight that's off your shoulders and you quickly learn what's really important in life. You were using marijuana, I assume, to help both with the emotional pain and the physical pain that you yeah. experienced as an NFL player. And when the league found out about that, you were basically forced to switch to opioids and you then became addicted to those pills. Do you think the league should, should reconsider that? That some players end up in this position where they have to take opioids to deal with the pain instead of being able to use something else? Yeah, I mean, well, so I, I tested positive for marijuana and I, I was, for two years I got put in the system and that removed one of my options for pain relief. So yeah, I, I really got into only having to be able to take pills and that led to an addiction. But Marijuana is very helpful, but the league's kind of in a tough spot because it's only legal in some states, and I don't think they can make a blanket policy for every team. What are you, what are you doing with yourself now? What are your plans for the future? Yeah, so uh, after retirement and everything, I started the Rhino Callahan Foundation. So we're giving scholarships and support to LGBT students, primarily athletes. All of my proceeds from the book go directly to it. You know, over half of uh, LGBT Q athletes quit at some point because of their sexuality and 
you know, I think people need to learn that they can keep playing and, and a locker room is not a hostile environment. So if you kind of help spread the word, I think that'll go a long way. How have you been able to, to meet any of the kids who've received these scholarships and what's that moment like knowing that you once were in that position where you considered something so drastic because of your sexuality? Yeah, I, I've met tons of LGBT students, a lot of athletes, a lot of them reach out to me. Yeah, kids these days are a lot more open-minded than they were when I was young. Um, I'm always learning something just about different terms and things like that. And it's encouraging though that these kids are in a much more welcoming environment. Obviously there's a long way to go to equality and everything, but uh, you know, I think we're on the right path. Well, it's such important work that you're doing. Ryan O'Callaghan, thank you so much. The, the, the book is My Life on the Line, How the NFL Damn Near Killed Me and Ended Up Saving My Life. Congratulations, and thank you so much for chatting with us. We appreciate it. Thank yes, you, Ryan. Absolutely. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown. So as we sit in the podcast studio to record this, actress Felicity Huffman has reported to prison. She is now behind bars, serving time in the college admission scandal. She reported to a federal prison in Dublin, California this morning, where she will serve a two-week sentence and then undergo a year of supervised release. As you, as you recall, Huffman pleaded guilty to paying $15,000 to a man in an attempt to boost her daughter's SAT scores. One of the interesting things of this case to me has always been William H. Macy, her husband, mm. who somehow, even though he's her spouse, is completely not mentioned in this legal case. Mm. I don't know how that happened behind the scenes, but it's fascinating. Well, it just seems like they had her writing these emails and they couldn't pin it on him. They couldn't quite get him, but they were able to get her. And this is one of those things. So she's got a two-week sentence. I think the shortest sentence handed down was one-year probation. Mm -hmm. That was last week. And the longest sentence has been, I think, five months. So there's been this range. She got the two weeks because it was only $15,000. Other people have paid $500,000. And it seems like it's going on that scale. Mm. How much did you pay to rig this situation? And she didn't, she stopped herself from doing it for the second daughter. Like she, she showed remorse. Right. And she clearly stopped herself before she did what Lori Laughlin did. I feel like two weeks in a sort of white collar federal prison, I don't think is all that bad. I think, I think she can handle this. I would, I would not last a day. Well, you, you wouldn't be able to. You wouldn't be able to do your fantasy Just football. Just look at me. Just look at me. I wouldn't last a but day. But this is we're talking. Like, remember when Martha Stewart was imprisoned for her mm. stock? Right. Issue? How long did she go away for? She, it was. It was like a year. Yeah. It was a long time, and yeah. she always talked about how lovely the women were yeah. in, the, in the facility. We she taught them how to open their own businesses and gave them business advice. So I think in this case, you're. You're right, David. It's two weeks. It's not going to be that bad. Let's face it. Physically, I think what it really is is the humiliation of actually having been sent to prison for doing something that just, I think the whole country has just been shaking their heads at these parents wanting to even put themselves in this position. And a lot of people already feel like the college game, I put those up in air quotes even though you can't see mm-hmm. me, uh, is already so rigged in one direction of the people with the money that this is what really sickened people. The people who have the money to pay for any college that's out there already have such a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. To then have this further advantage by cheating the system just seems so remarkably unfair. Mm-hmm. And I think the judge, when they sentenced her, actually took her case and compared it to a woman, I think in Akron, Ohio, Mm -hmm. who had done something 
kind of similar for their kid, and this was an uh, this was a person who wasn't wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was glad to see that she got a similar sentence. Yeah. I'm also glad to see that she only gets two weeks. She'll be out before Halloween. So she'll be be able to come out before Halloween. She should come out, and then for Halloween, she should dress as Aunt Becky on Full House. <laughs> that would be clutch. Two weeks, come out and dress as like Lori Loughlin. Oh, By the way, Martha Stewart served crazy. five months. Five months. And then five I months knew it was of several months. home confinement. But... And then there's always this debate when there's a white collar crime right. of people going, they should have gotten more time. They should have gotten mm. more time because I, I, th- I think a lot of people compared the Felicity Huffman sentence. She got the two weeks. There was a woman. Remember who? She voted illegally. Yes. And she got five years in prison. She didn't realize she was voting illegally. And so there's always this comparison of this person goes away for this long, this person goes away for this long. And it seems to me more so the, the thought should be, how long should we be putting people in prison <laughs> Well, this at was, all? Remember, this was the first big case. This was the first sentencing. And so the judge definitely wanted to send a message. There was a theory there for a while. She wouldn't get anything. Yeah. That she'd pay the fine and walk away. It's so important. I think the U.S. attorney in Boston, Andrew Lelling, has been so good about pursuing these cases to send the message around the world as well as within the U.S. that our university system is going to be on the up mm. and up. You cannot have a society where people really think, even though we've talked about the legacies, the athletic scholarships, the various reasons people are admitted to college, that on the whole, uh, it is not a rigged system and that you have to have the credentials to be admitted. Well, you think about how important it is to our economy here in Boston in particular, that the university system be perceived as credible and honest abroad, Mm -hmm. in addition to here in the United States. And if this becomes this thought process that you can just pay your way in, that's not good for the university yeah. system, and it's not good for attracting students from abroad mm-hmm. to come here. One little side note on all of this. We're talking about all these parents doing so much to have their mm. kids be yeah. in the big-name school. What is wrong with just having your kid go to a yeah. school that they are ready for, that they'll actually do well at? Why is it so important for these people to go to their next cocktail party and somehow impress somebody by telling them where their kid is going. It's their life. It's not yours. You may be paying, but grow up. It's not that important to tell your next person at a cocktail party that your kid's at Stanford. Tell them, because guess what? Nobody really cares. No. And what it <laughs> they is, just is, want to know that your kid's doing well. This was the ultimate example of moving from the helicopter parent to the bulldozer parent, where parents think that they can buy and manipulate everything out of their child's way to give them an easy life. Easy life. Isn't it true that everything we've ever read or been taught was that the most successful people with the best character grew up in the depression and had nothing and had to <laughs> fight their way to an education and to the top. Don't we know that when you spoil kids or make things easier for them, it ruins their life? Mm. Has, hasn't anybody read enough by now to You're understand right. it's, that's it's com- how it works? Completely yeah. misguided. Jonathan, yeah. our intrepid producer, just handed me this uh, fact sheet about the Dublin Federal Correctional Institution mm. where Felicity Huffman will be spending two weeks. Uh, what, what does this say here at the top here, Jonathan? Nine. Sorry, your your handwriting is... Um, <laughs> It's, it's Jonathan, by the way, is one of those people who writes in all caps. Mm. Every letter is all caps. He's yelling. He's yelling at you. <laughs> so I've never he seen that. He may be that. intrepid, but he's angry. <laughs> um, it is the ninth most comfortable. Ninth most comfortable uh, prison. According to yeah. arrestrecords.com. According to arrestrecords.com, mm-hmm. which I, I'm on that site every day. 
Um, the library is stocked with classics. Mm-hmm. There, there are solar panels there, and that's how they power it. Mm-hmm. Uh, offsite work. So she'll get to theoretically leave the prison uh, if she wants to do some offsite work. And a quote from, is this from a former inmate? Or yeah, who's that from? From the, from the website is, serving time is a breeze. Oh, and this wow. is, you know, these, it's true that these white collar prisons, it's very different from a place right. where you're oh, going to go in oh, maximum security. Remember facility. the, um, the wall street guy, uh, uh, what were their names? Um, Michael Milken and, and Ivan Boski mm-hmm. went to prison for their massive white collar crime on wall street years ago. I remember watching an interview with Ivan Boski. He said it was the most relaxed he'd been in decades. Yeah. <laughs> he had a great he, time. The, the lack of stress. He Loved it. He had no responsibilities. All the pressure that was on him in business right. was taken right. away. She might have a blast for Reminds me of that scene from Arrested Development when he, you know, uh, George Sr. there is in prison and his son comes into visit and goes, I am having the time of my life. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you're going to learn a little bit about Paula and myself through mm-hmm. what I'm about to say because you're referencing Mike Milken <laughs> and I'm going to reference... Mike the Situation from the Jersey Shore. (laughs) Michael Sorrentino. He was just in prison, and he apparently loved it. He worked out. He ate great. He came out ripped. (laughs) And I'm telling you, two weeks. Liam, you could make the two weeks. You could do it. I could make the two weeks. I could do it. I think I could do the time. Do you think Paula could make two weeks? The problem is two weeks is not enough to come out ripped. In fact, no, that's true. (laughs) You're right. We need a little more time. But maybe four weeks. What they say about prison is you go in. You immediately try to claim some type of dominance. Right. So you find somebody smaller than you, and you either start yelling at them or you act a little crazy. Right. That's the key, Liam. Right. Okay. Right? David I'm good would at do that. this well. I would just walk in, act a little crazy, and then they leave me alone for two weeks. I'm good at that. There you go. Acting crazy. Acting crazy. Yeah. Let's hear a little right now. A little crazy, Liam. Well, just set him off by asking him any specific. Um, you know, ask him about candy corn. He'll give you very well. I passionate like responses. He should go to prison like just for that. liking David, candy corn. Yeah, David uh, really did not like my candy corn take. I think you actually said it's my worst take of all time. Absolutely. Which, right. frankly, is a pretty high bar. My worst take of all time is a pretty high bar. Yeah, candy corn is definitely up there. It is. <laughs> I don't know how anyone oh. could dislike candy corn because it's it's just sugar. Oh, it could be the texture. It could be the color. It <laughs> could be the waxy. flavor. Waxy. It could be oh. the fact that it's literally like just little, made out of plastic. The little pumpkin ones, though? No. Those ones you also think are bad. Disgusting. We Those pulled are not this, my favorite. We pulled this on Twitter, by the way, and I did win this on Twitter. People do yes. like Which it. is all that matters. Handfuls of people. Handfuls Hand, of people. Tens of love people. Love their handfuls of candy love corn. Love It was like a 52-48 result on the poll, and if I win by so four percentage go. points, I'll take it. In prison, would, there's all kinds of candy corn. Liam would wear his fellow inmates <laughs> down with the sheer power of his arguments. I would. I would just annoy <laughs> them, to them to death. You know what? That would be my... That would be my Your technique. Go-to? I would. I wouldn't have to be physically intimidating, so that's not going to happen. You'd anyway. get shiv the yeah. first day. I, <laughs> I would just annoy everyone into submission. I love this. This is a good. This I is would a immediately good be a maternal figure giving advice. Yeah. You Absolutely. would. That's you what would. I would you do. You would be very, you would be the mother. <laughs> You'd be handing out your commissary notes here and there. Paula would be in the know. library going, okay, here's the deal. Listen. This book is fantastic. I read this one at BC. Here's the deal. This book is also Clapping fantastic. Hands. If you've ever seen David Wade's Paula Evan impression, it's the, lots of arms. Lots, clap, of arms well, lots of arms and hands. I mean, it's lots so many arms. Padding, hands. <laughs> Clapping Just hands. read this book, okay? <laughs> just read it. Your life. Just read it. Oh, just read it. <laughs> oh, so. Oh, my gosh. Uh, 
Thanks to David for stepping in. That was great. Yeah. Sean Keller this week. I'd like to come in more often. Maybe. I know. Um, well, hey. Do it. Let's do it. We'll just have to... Uh, there's a, there's a fourth microphone. We need David's... There is a fourth chair. We need David's yeah, corner. We, now, we have a new... This is a still relatively new studio, and now there's a fourth microphone here. We but need, the fourth um, microphone right now is taken up by Commissioner Evans. We need to... <laughs> you, we need to thanks res- for having me as well. I really appreciate <laughs> Thank it. Thank you, Commissioner Evans, for being in. Um, so uh, this podcast is available anywhere. Subscribe and share and review. Are we supposed to ask for reviews? I know a lot of podcasters do that. Uh, the Twitter yeah, handle... No, actually, please do, because... Please do. We have... Um, Rate and review. We have, a fi- we're, we're, we have five stars. But it's we not do. enough people. Among, among tens of people. Yeah, so that's far. the thing is we need more people yeah. smashing that. Hey, yes. five stars out of ten stars is not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. Uh, the Twitter handle is at Studio BZ Pod. I'm at Paula Evan WBZ. I'm at Liam WBZ. I'm at David Wade. And we will see you again next week. When will we'll be, be seeing, seeing you? Did you know that's yeah, our did you know? <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> we knew that would be right up your alley, actually. Uh, Who actually came up with that original? It was uh, Keller. It was Keller resurrected it. Easy radio.